Texas Business Minds, a presentation of the Texas Business Journals, brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. In this episode, Dallas Business Journal Managing Editor Rob Schneider welcomes Dr. Myrtle P. Bell for a thoughtful and enlightening conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Myrtle P. Bell is the Associate Dean for Diversity, Racial Equity, and Inclusion and the Thomas McMahon Endowed Professor in Business Ethics in the College of Business at the University of Texas at Arlington. She's a Professor of Management and a Faculty Affiliate of the Center for African American Studies and the Center for Women and Gender Studies and has spent her entire career focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion in her teaching, service, and research. She also claims that she's the last living Myrtle in the world. Welcome, Myrtle. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Rob. Well, you were one of our honorees for our Leaders in Diversity Awards, which was a brand new award for us this year. And and we had a great discussion uh, at that time. And we're going to talk about some of the things we did. Can you walk us through your journey in the diversity, equity and inclusion space? How has it evolved through the years? Okay, I'll be happy to. Actually, Rob, I've been doing this work for all my life. I've been observing diversity and diversity related issues and paying attention. And just a few examples, when I was about five, growing up in in Louisiana, there was a laundromat that we passed every day with a big whites-only sign in the window. And this is the mid-60s. And my mom and her sister decided that they would go there to integrate the place. And they went there to wash and took four kids, two kids each, and baskets of laundry and proceeded to start washing. And I was very afraid, knowing that something really bad could happen to us. And after a while, the owner came out red-faced and yelling, can't you read? The sign says whites only. And my mom and her sister answered quietly, we only have whites, pointing to the baskets of white sheets, towels, and underwear. And the owner shook his head and went back into the office and they continued to do their laundry. And the place remained integrated from that point on. And from that, I learned that sometimes you have to take a stand, afraid or not, and taking a stand can bring about change. And so I continued watching and observing every day in elementary school. We said the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States flag, as many of you have done. And every time I got to the part about with liberty and justice for all, I wondered about the hypocrisy. I also wondered when we studied the Declaration of Independence, how could the Founding Fathers claim that all men were created equal while enslaving, raping, branding, whipping, lynching, and torturing other people? And then enslaving the children they fathered with the women they had enslaved, and this was something Thomas Jefferson did. I continued questioning and learning throughout my elementary school studies at an all-black laboratory high school on the campus of Southern University to my middle and high school studies at an all-white lab school at LSU where my classmates asked if I knew their maid. Then I went to Notre Dame where my freshman year roommate fled the room when I entered when she saw that I was black and she screamed she's colored and she and her parents fled the room and asked for a room change but Notre Dame refused to let her move out and asked me actually if I would still room with her after what she had done and from that I learned that when an institution stands up for what's right this can really matter 
Then I went on to LSU for the MBA, where I was one of five blacks to start the program and the only one to finish, feeling isolated and alone, but finishing what I started. Then I continued to a job in industry, my first job, doing what I felt was wasting my life, and life's too short to waste. So I went back to school working full-time, and as a doctoral student, again, I was the only black person. Then I was a faculty member, the only black person for years. Um, at UT Arlington, I was the first black woman hired, the first to be promoted to associate and full professor, et cetera, et cetera. And those were many firsts, but like President, Vice President Kamala Harris, I definitely won't be the last. And we have a lot more women in the, the department now, and actually two, almost three, soon to be three, black women faculty. And I encourage people to be willing to be the first and also to be willing to help others to be the first. So use your position of privilege to help others. And all these experiences led to my work, basically trying to change the world. So you literally wrote the textbook on diversity and inclusion in the workplace uh, as part of your teaching and research. Can you give us a brief overview of education research about diversity in organizations, including your book and how it's evolved through the years? Sure, I'll be happy to. In business schools, most of the research that's relevant to diversity stems from management departments, and we get a lot of research. We draw also on research from psychology departments, from healthcare, from sociology. And early on, that research focused on affirmative action and recruitment, hiring and turnover. And this evolved to a broader, more broadly looking at human resources activities, such as compensation, performance evaluation, promotion, disparity in groups across those areas. And those disparities and ways to address and mitigate them continue to be studied a lot. And also the education research on diversity once it started talking about diversity it focused a lot on the bottom line. Bottom line impacts to organizations, how they can be more profitable by uh, valuing diversity. And now that's really morphed into more of the moral and social reasons for doing this, as well as the bottom line impacts. And so in my book, Diversity in Organizations, and I'm just finishing the fourth edition, I focus on a bounty of research that's been done, as I said, in management, psychology, sociology, all kinds of different academic areas. And I took the position that it's hard to argue with empirical data and science, although sadly some people still do. But I really believe that the data can help convince people who believe in science. And one study that's particularly troubling is a recent meta-analysis of studies on hiring discrimination on the past 25 years. And this study showed that there's been no change in such discrimination against African Americans and only a slight improvement in discrimination against Hispanics in the United States over the past 25 years. And so clearly there's still a lot of work to be done. Studies still show a lot of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, on the basis of sex and gender, there's sexual harassment. However, there's also a lot of research that shows we're moving forward and being inclusive and being intentional about trying to be inclusive. And that's encouraging work. So you also, in addition to everything else, teach a class that's very popular. Talk about your legacy and impact of teaching DEI issues through the years. Well, I actually, Rob, think that 
Teaching diversity is my most important work. Uh, since I've been a professor, I put it on paper and counted. I've counted, I've taught upwards of 4,000 students at the undergraduate, master's, and doctoral levels. And in terms of just the diversity class, it's probably been about 2,500 students. And these students go out to change the world as they work in their organizations and live in society. They get education about discrimination and disparities using research evidence, and they're less likely to be swayed by stereotypes and biases and things that are unfounded in terms of job-related qualifications. They're more likely to seek data when new questions arise. And every year, students tell me that the diversity class should be mandatory across campus. Um, It's a College of Business course, but students across campus do enroll. It's mandatory for public health majors, for example. And a few weeks ago, I spoke with a young man who was in my class in 2008, who's now a high-level executive at Hospital System. And he told me because of the information that he was exposed to in my class, 13, 14 years ago, he makes different decisions in healthcare, and they do different things worrying about, wondering about why people present in the hospital with certain issues, and they're aware of food deserts and things that bring them to the hospital. So just the awareness helped him to go and investigate more. And so these are things that are really, really rewarding, and I realize that the students that I impact go out to impact hundreds and thousands of others and those people impact other people so that's definitely my legacy 2020 was a tumultuous year for a lot of reasons after george floyd's murder in 2020 the protests that followed diversity equity and inclusion became top of mind for for the business community for society as a whole can you discuss what happens when a topic that you are already passionate about becomes part of a national conversation what was that like Um, Actually, Rob, it was bittersweet because it was just terrible. And I did not watch it because I don't need to watch George Floyd be murdered in the street. But it was terrible what happened and what you could see the pain that this event caused in the black community for sure, but also in American society overall and actually around the world. So it was painful. At the same time, it was positive that people recognized that this was an atrocity. And in actuality, this has happened numerous times before. Um, There have been people who were killed on film and nothing happened. But I think the confluence of the pandemic, uh, George Floyd's murder, um, Ahmaud Arbery's murder, Breonna Taylor, I think all of these things work together to bring this to top of mind for many other people. And so for me at this point, it made me optimistic and hopeful that this time change will be substantive and lasting. You know, if I, I thought about Rodney King's beating in, on film in 1992, and this was a watershed moment, but change didn't happen. And this time may be the time. And I think perhaps we weren't ready as a society now. And it took George Floyd's murder in such a horrific way to get to us. And in addition to the disproportionate deaths of black and Latino communities in COVID. But these things may have helped us to get to the place where we're really ready to make substantive change. So can you talk about your intentional efforts to increase diversity at UT Arlington's doctoral program? Sure. 
I'm also the doctoral coordinator, so I get all the applications and there's a committee and we meet and talk about and select students. And I believe that it's really important for students to see people like them represented in front of the classroom. And there's reams of research that show that people, students succeed when they're taught by faculty that look like them in some manner. So somewhere along the way, if you're black, you need to have a black professor or teacher, or if you're Latino, the same sort of thing. And so in colleges of business, black, Latino, and Native American students and women are actually underrepresented in doctoral programs and then, of course, as business faculty. So when recruiting doctoral students at UT Arlington, we have a partnership with the PhD Project. That's phdproject.org. And this is an organization that's specifically focused on increasing diversity in colleges of business. And so through our partnership with them, we've been able to source uh, several underrepresented minority doctoral students. And we also look at what other students say on their applications about diversity in their student body. And so we get that from students of all races and ethnicities. Um, And so part of our success at UT Arlington, though, has also been because diversity begets diversity. And our reputation as a welcoming, warm place for traditionally devalued students of color and also women this winds up being a tremendous recruiting tool. They come here to study, and now we have a bounty of applicants from underrepresented groups. Talk about how uh, DEI-related issues are different on a college campus versus a typical work environment. Okay, that's interesting because there are some similarities and there are also some stark differences. So in part, we have students, and so the students are from a different generation, and most of them are from different generations. Now, we have students of all ages at our university. I was an older student myself, but but largely they're from different generations, and different generations have different experiences that shape their life views and their worldviews and perspectives, and so we have diversity among them, and UT Arlington was recently named the number one most diverse university for uh, domestic minorities in uh, by poets and quants, and so last year we were number two, this year we're number one. And also at our university, we graduate more African Americans than any other uh, university in the state of Texas. So we're diverse. We're also Hispanic serving. And so there's a lot of diversity among our students. And also there's diversity among our faculty, although there's far less diversity in terms of underrepresented minorities, but we're doing some work on that. And in the College of Business, of course, as I've said, there's uh, an underrepresentation of women faculty, but we're also doing some work on that. And so we have the diversity of the faculty and the diversity of the students, but we also have a commitment to serve our students and to work with our students. And that really, really helps the faculty want to learn and grow and understand what our students need. And so that's somewhat different than a regular organization, a for-profit company or something like that. In 2020, many schools and companies uh, increased focus in DEI-related issues, including hiring leadership in that realm, including a position that you now have. Can you talk about the importance of people in those roles and what that does for, in your case, a university, or what that does for uh, maybe a large uh, public or private company or small For sure. It's really important to have people working in these roles in organizations, a university, small company, large company, because it sends a message that we think this is important. 
we're going to attend to it, we value it. It's important that these uh, people in these roles, where possible, report to the chief executive officer because that says that we value this at a high level and the chief executive officer will have the access to someone who's knowledgeable and educated in this field. And also it says that the person who's in this role will have the ear of the chief executive officer. So it's really important to have them and it's also important where they report. It's important that they have similar authority as other leaders and organizations and it's also important that they are well-educated and qualified and equipped for the role. So sometimes people are just tapped to be in certain roles because of their, the color of their skin or because they're a woman or because they're a sexual minority, but people actually need to be educated and skilled and equipped to deal with this or have a lifetime of experience in organizations working in these roles to help them be able to succeed. Dr. Myrtle P. Bell joining Dallas Business Journal Managing Editor Rob Schneider. In our next segment, Dr. Bell shares how different generations view DEI concerns. When Texas Business Minds continues. I'm Rich Gregasco, President and CEO of Texas Mutual Insurance Company. To everyone who has been hard at work providing the things we need during this crisis, we say thank you. You truly are essential and we're proud to be on the job with you. More at TexasMutual.com slash on the job. Continuing our conversation on Texas Business Minds as Dr. Myrtle P. Bell joins Dallas Business Journal Managing Editor Rob Schneider. Talk about how different generations view DEI-related matters, especially the current difference between how students and faculty and leadership view DEI issues. Okay. In general, younger people are a lot more knowledgeable about and open to DEI issues than in the past. They read a lot on social media and they talk about things that older generations may not have been as willing to broach and discuss. Their friends are more likely to be diverse, or at least they're more likely to be less homogenous, and they're more likely to be open to questioning the status quo. So instead of it's always been that way, the youth are more likely to say, but why? But why has it been that way and what can we change? Research shows that younger people have more positive attitudes toward diversity issues. However, some of this research also shows that the more positive attitudes are still problematic and they don't necessarily translate into actions, behaviors. So just knowing about diversity issues doesn't mean that you will act in an inclusive manner. Just going to school with people who are different doesn't mean that you embrace that and learn from it. So some of that has to be intentional and that's what we try to do in the College of Business for sure. And over the years, my students have often told me that the bigots are going to die off and everything's going to be fine when all the old people are dead. And that's actually not the way it works, right? That's not the way it's working. And so there are biases that are spread across the population, although younger people are more likely to be inclusive. But there's still a lot of work to do, even among the younger generation, in terms of educating them about things that they're just not aware of and that they need to know. And once they do become aware of things, then they're definitely positioned and willing to work for change. As DEI 
has expanded and changed. Accountability also has changed. And so one of the growing spaces for DEI has been the use of data. And talk about the ways that companies, schools, we measure DEI in a workplace. And has that data and tracking dramatically improved in the past few years? Well, data, as I said earlier, I think it's really important to use research and empirical data. And so in my book, I use census data and Department of Labor data. And it's really important, I think, for any organization to not be afraid to look at the data. Sometimes organizations are afraid to look at the data because they're afraid of what they will find. And my recommendation is if you don't measure it, and people say this all the time, then it does not matter. And so you need to use your human resources sources information systems to pull data by race, by sex, by age, and try to figure out are there salary disparities, are people clustered in certain jobs. And so in terms of evolution, in the past we looked only at standard demographic areas such as race and ethnicity, Hispanic origin, sex. To a lesser extent people looked at age and they're looking at age to make sure there's no age discrimination with people over 40, but in actuality, there's younger age discrimination too. So that needs to be looked at and attended to. But so now we're attending also to things like sexual orientation and family status. And so there aren't often boxes where people can check whether or not they're sexual minority or gender identity minority. But Progressive organizations still will have employee resource groups, will still have ways of finding out and ways of seeing if they're engaged and feel welcome, just like uh, heterosexual people. And so many of these things aren't captured on any forms, but it's important for organizations to perhaps conduct surveys and ask people about their experiences and recommendations. So along the same lines, if you're tracking data, how do you keep leaders accountable to DEI goals? Well, definitely goals matter. And so, as I mentioned, if it's not measured, it does not matter. And for any organization, they should determine what's important to them. So they may may be underrepresented in a specific group, in specific areas. They may have identified compensation disparities. They might want to do recruiting. And so they should write down and let the leaders know. And the leaders should say, we want to do this. This is what we're going to try to do. And then at the end of the period, whether it's six months or a year, they should determine how well they've done against those goals. And so the answers that we, you know, the pipeline is thin, that shouldn't be acceptable. Indeed, certain we couldn't do it. It was too hard. Those kind of excuses are not acceptable for other financial goals or for other kinds of goals that organizations have. And they shouldn't be acceptable in the DEI space as well. So for sure, leaders need to engage and determine what problems they have in their organization, what they're trying to resolve, and then have something hard, specific, but attainable. So goal setting theory says that's what makes goals effective, hard, specific, and attainable. So it's not just I'm going to do better. It would be something like I'm going to increase the representation of this group by X percent. I'm going to go to Y more uh, historically black colleges and universities to recruit and certain kinds of things like that. So diversity is a word that has been used in the business community for a long time, and it could largely be platitudes or part of a mission statement. Uh, Both inclusion and equity were added in there later. 
Can you talk about how those terms became a bigger part of the overall conversation and how it all kind of adds up together? For sure. You know, I say this with caution, but diversity itself is fairly easy to achieve. An organization can simply hire people who are demographically different. And so over the 25 years that diversity has been a buzzword, people grew to understand that diversity alone is not enough. And so you can have an organization where you're, you know, have 40% women, but they're in clerical positions and administrative positions and the high level positions, the women are absent. Or you can have a great deal of underrepresented minorities, but they're certainly in a different area as well. And so you need to pay more attention to inclusion and equity. You need to ask, are those traditionally marginalized people here, but still marginalized? Are they confined to the bottom rungs? Is their turnover higher? Is their compensation lower? And these are things that you can also look at through data, going back to the need for data. Are they punished for the same behavior that others are given a pass for? There's an interesting academic study I saw recently that showed that Hispanics and Blacks are punished for tardiness. And so this fits with a a narrative about Hispanics and Blacks being likely to be late. But whites in that specific organization were not punished for the same kind of behavior. And so these are things that organizations have access to data for and they should look at it. So once once that people began to realize that diversity alone was not enough, then the conversation broadened to include equity and inclusion and to go deeper than just diversity. And that's where we are today. And that's really, 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 really important. I've also heard conversations about belonging. And so if we think about being in a meeting where we're there, we're included, but we don't feel like we belong. And so that's the next step. Finally, can you tell me something that you were able to do personally during the pandemic that you had always wanted to do or maybe hadn't had time to do in a long time? That's a tough one. Um, The only thing that I have done differently during this pandemic, because I I always work from home and I work a lot. I've actually worked more during the pandemic because there was nothing else to do. But I did put together, my husband and I, a thousand piece puzzle. And it's a beautiful puzzle of plants, plant leaves. And I got it from Folia Collective in L.A. And they send it to me in the mail. And I love it. It's a thousand pieces. I'm going to get it framed and put it on my wall to go with my collection of a thousand plants. I was going to say, we're, we're in audio form here, but uh, as I'm looking behind you, we're on video, and I, I remember from your nomination form, uh, you, you hoard plants. And I think, I what, what, was, what was the phrase you used about hoarding? You're not a hoarder if you can still see the floor. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah. thank you for your time today, Myrtle. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. It was fun. Thanks again to Dr. Myrtle P. Bell for joining us. And thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Texas Business Journals and brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. Texas.